0: So um, we are dealing with the, the chapters that we are busy now with is basically about how the gospel spreads among the Gentile territories um, from um, who's, the, who's the primary sending church at this point? The church in Antioch, Yes, the church in Antioch. All right, so that's from chapter 13. we find the missionary journeys. we are on the first missionary journey, and who are the guys that's traveling together? It's Paul and it's. Barnabas, and it's John Mark, the third guy. Um, Although he wasn't sort of, we don't see the text chose him, but he seems to be with them on this journey. Last week we we spoke about that they went to this island, to Cyprus. And as you can see there, they sort of landed there in Salamis, and then they traveled through the island, and there's no report as to what happened as they traveled through the island. But when they get to Paphos, then they actually get into touch with a what was the word He was some type of official i forgot what this proconsul he was a roman proconsul and he had this buddy of his that was a hybrid jew pagan type of sorcerer type of deal and go read that story it was wonderful and so they had great success there uh, on the island of cyprus obviously who came from that island barnabas so i think it was fun for barnabas to move through the territory over there so where are we going tonight? Uh, we'll be looking at the next stop if you look on the map over there, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But before we get there, oh, I can just share that with you while we are here. They're going up to Perga, and then they're going to Sidian Antioch. So there's two Antiochs in the book of Acts, and it, the other one is called the Syrian Antioch, and then this one is called the Sidian Antioch. But generally, I think the New Testament just refers to Antioch. Um, let's look at some questions here to start off with. How do you feel about people who constantly change their minds? Yes, you like it. I like it when people constantly change their minds, especially your wife. <laughs> tonight, tonight you get in the house and the temperature is set at sixty degrees Fahrenheit. Tomorrow you get in there and it's seventy degrees, and you're like, "Did your thermostat, your bodily thermostat, break yesterday or today?" You know, there's constant changes. Do we like consistency or do we like changes? Um, how often do you have conversations with, with people just about them? This is a tricky one. Very tricky. Because generally, what do people want to talk about? They want to talk about themselves. We like talking about ourselves. We don't talk about others. This is a, I want you to pause for a moment and think carefully about this. How often do you say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go talk to that guy and I'm going to talk to him about what he wants to talk about. Not what I want to talk about. Thirdly, will you do anything God tells you to do? That's a personal one, deep one. Fourthly, what contribution have you made to your generation so far? We were with these people now in in Albany and she's uh, the lady is a Lynn County mental health agent or whatever. So if there's Something going wrong with some person on the street, she gets called in, and she needs to decide, does this person get locked up, go see a psychologist, or be left alone? And I was thinking about this question, because I I prepared this last night. I was thinking, she's making quite a profound contribution to her generation, because she's really getting to the grit of the difficult stuff of society. She gets in contact with people who are really broken, and she tries to make their lives better. And so I would say, well done, you're adding some value to people's lives in your generation. What contribution have you made to your generation? Um, what do you honestly, how do you honestly believe you will make it to heaven one day? And we've spoken about that a lot. We spoke about it this morning in the sermon. And I think it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it. It just doesn't sit well. But how do you believe you get to heaven really? We'll talk about that. Can you see a difference between contemporary religion and Jesus? Those of you who don't know what contemporary means, it's current. Now, religion of today. How does religion of today look different than Jesus? What's the difference there? All right. Let's go. Let's read the text together. What I'll do is we can read verse by verse, and then I'll just make a few comments. Um, So tonight we're going to do a bit differently than usual. And then at the end... I will just make a few observations and we can discuss it if you want to talk about it. And just some things that I pull out of the text. So Acts chapter 13, verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions... Oh, there it is on the screen, sorry. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, when John, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Let's just recap quickly what the map looks like. Um, just so you, you get get it there. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia when John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, um, according to Acts chapter 15, if, if you want to, you can just switch over quickly there to verse 38. I don't usually like doing this because I, I just want to stick to the to, to the thought here. But if we go to verse 38 of chapter 15, it says there, um, but Paul did not think it wise to take him, talking about John Mark, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So Paul seems to be, we don't know what happens here in Pamphylia, but uh, John Mark decides he's going to go off on his, on, on his own tangent. I, the, the scholars say they don't really know what happened, but it seems like if you go read chapter 15, somehow or another John Mark had deserted them according to Paul's view. Um, and I was thinking, yeah, perhaps this is something that happened. And, you know, because it seems like if you go read the text, Barnabas is like, yo, let's keep John Mark. And Paul's like, no, we don't keep him. So Barnabas seems to be a more gracious and tolerant type of person as to uh, in regard to Paul. Paul is more like, no, you dropped us before. Um, you, you're not going to uh, go with us again this time. I took the boys uh, two days ago, or three days ago, I can't remember. Yeah, the weeks just fly by like this, right? I, I don't even know sometimes what day it is. The only thing that helps me to know Sunday as I'm standing preaching. So the boys want to go swim, and Neo's like the whole time, I want to go run with you. I want to go run with you. And um, that's the only time in your life where you want to go run, right? Where you've got natural energy. only time where it's like super exciting. Like he, he can't sleep because he's going to go run with his dad tomorrow. So they, uh, the family drops me and, and Michael off. Um, where's, where's this cemetery? It's close to the cemetery. Or yeah, next to the lake, Foster Lake. I don't know what it's called, but a small one there. They drop me off there, and then we're going to run to Lewis Creek. Now, to be honest with you, when he started running, we're going to start running. I didn't know. It's like 3.2 kilometers, two miles. Now, for these little boys, that's quite a distance. But in any case, I, I said to them, now, uh, I knew, I know no, he's like, he, he just strides through the air. He's got a, he's, I need to put him in touch with you, brother, because I think he's got a natural talent. You know, he just moves. And Micah's like, yeah, he's going to run. But Micah runs with bricks on his feet. So I, 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 I pause him for a moment and I say to him, listen, dude, pause. I want you to know we're going to start running here yeah, and we're not going to walk again until we get there. I want that to sink in. And you need to think carefully about the decision you're going to make now. The Bible says, your yes must be yes. And your no must be no. And my boy, it's okay. It's okay if you say no. But let me tell you this. If you say yes, you're going to go all the way. And you're not going to stop. And you could check. He's like thinking twice. Oh, my goodness. And he said yes. And he ran all the way. And I think I've seen through my life that is an incredibly important principle that when you sign up for something, you finish it. We had the boys in wrestling, and there was a mother... that, that You can see the kid, like he gets onto the mat, and he's just crying. He's like scared, this kid that's going gonna, gonna to break him, you know. He doesn't want to be there. And I think this is an extreme occasion. And I was sort of through the, the day, you know, all the kids are beating him up, and you, he doesn't want to be there. And then I spoke to the mom, I'm like... You know, just out of interest, like, why do you keep on letting him do this? And she said, because he said he, he wanted to do it. And we said, if you start it, then you have to finish it. Now, I think that was a bit extreme. But I suspect, you know where I'm going with this, I suspect that's what's happening here. Paul and Barnabas are going on a mission. There's no turning back. There's no turning around. Jesus said in Luke 9, 62, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. So if you say you're going to do something for Christ, you do it. You pull it through. You go all the way. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable it is. About a mile down the road, Micah's like, oh, my feet's hurting. My back's hurting. I say, go, boy. That is great. It's making you stronger. This is self-control. This is discipline. When you beat your body and you make it your slave. So what I suspect happened here is that John Mark's like, nah, I don't want to go. I want to go back. i have got something else that I want to do. And Paul's like, no, we need you. Because now you, you said you're going to help us. And I think he did help them. And now you suddenly leave. Now we've got to struggle on our own as we go further. So you're making it difficult for the ministry. So when it happens again, Paul is like, no, but how do I know when we get to the next town? Then you say, okay, well, you want to go. Because you've taught me already that your yes isn't yes and your no isn't no. That's what I suspect happened here. This is why it's very important that when we commit to each other, when we commit to the church, that we do it right. That we commit to Christ. We do it right. We keep our commitment. We stick to it. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable it is. We can't go based on our feelings. You've got to go based on what is right and based on the commitment that you made and the promise that you made. So that's what I suspect happened here. Verse 13. Verse 14 says, From Perga, they went to in Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and there they sat down. The mission... Remember, what's their mission? Their mission is to reach the Gentiles. But here we see that they go into the synagogue. They go to the Jews first to offer the gospel. And we see that sort of right from the ministry of Jesus right through the apostles, the sheep of Israel first. So so they do that. And it's interesting that, um, let me just read the next verses there. Verse 15. Oh, yeah. Verse 14. What did they do when they got into the synagogue? They they just sat down. They're quiet, they move in. They are preachers of the gospel. They are powerful preachers of the gospel. But they go in the corner and they sit down and they are calm. Uh, They did not um, impose. They did not assume. But they took a back seat like a humble Jew. You know, Paul spoke about this. He said, you know, he became all things to all men in order to win some. To those under the law, he became like one under the law. That's what he does here. He goes and sits. He fits in. He blends in. Remember Jesus said, be as wise as a serpent. What does a serpent do? He camouflages. He fits in. He doesn't try to stand out. Uh, uh, I think in certain instances, yes, we stand out as as we shine like light. But look what he does here. He's not trying to impose himself or to be bombastic or to say, I I know everything and you guys are nothing. No, he, he takes his turn and look at what happens next. Verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leader of the synagogue, this is the beauty, sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Please speak. I think we've seen this a few times in Acts, right? Wait your turn. God will give you the opportunity. That's what we wait for. That's what a snake does. A snake is lying down and he waits for the right moment to strike. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, because I'm, I'm thinking maybe some of you are like, what? We have to be like snakes? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Or is there somebody like feeling this is awkward talking about snakes? Did Jesus say we've got to be like snakes? Yes, he did. He said we have to be as wise as serpents. And he speaks about that in the context of evangelizing. Now, a snake, what a snake does is he observes. He camouflages, he fits in, he observes, and then he strikes at the right moment. In this instance, what's happening? the prey is giving itself over to the snake. Sounds a bit weird, but they are receiving an opportunity to strike with the gospel um, because they were sitting quietly. Now, apparently it was customary to read the law um, section for section every week um, for a whole year. And that seems to be what happens here. Remember, they asked Jesus also to read when he came to the the synagogue in Nazareth. This is what we look for. Here it is. An invitation to speak. And honestly, that's what I try to do every week. Every week, I'm speaking to people, connecting with them at different levels, waiting for them to invite me to speak. Very much similar to this. I don't impose. I don't force myself. I show them I love them, I show them I care, I show them they're important, and I don't neglect my, my spiritual life. And hopefully through the process, they invite me to speak. And I've had some wonderful opportunities so far. Um, so that's what we look for. We've got to hit when the iron is hot. Now, these people, look at what the text says, there it says, if you have a word of in- in- exhortation for the people, Please speak. So they don't know what Paul and Barnabas is bringing. I mean, they made a mistake here. It's like, dude, don't let these guys speak, because if you allow them to speak, it's going to change stuff. It's going to change your life. So, you, so, so they, they didn't know, but they were looking for an exhortation. They wanted to be encouraged. And I think that they wanted to be encouraged because where did they live? Did they live in Israel? No. They were Jews. that had a synagogue in a pagan territory, in pagan worship. They were surrounded by pagan people. They had to walk down the street every day and smell pork meat. It was hard to be a Jew. And here these guys, they come from they, 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 they come from the south. They've come here up into the north. And they're like, well, we've got visitors here today. Oh, it would be so encouraging to hear what you've got to say, to encourage the Jews, the diaspora, the, the Jews spread out over, the, over the, the, the pagan lands. So perhaps some of these people were missing Jerusalem. Any guys, so Paul takes the, the opportunity, and now he's going to stand up and he's going to preach the word let's hear what he says. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, "Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. So now you know already that there's gentiles mixed with Jews in this." Situation. Obviously, worshippers of God, meaning uh, probably proselytes, but people respect the God of the Jews, right? The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, He led them out of the country. That country For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Do you see that quick summary? All the way from Egypt to Jesus within a few sentences. I think when Paul says to them, just a few observations. When Paul says to them, uh, um, fellow uh, Israelites and people who fear God. He wasn't creating distance between them. He's trying to get closer to them. He's trying to show them, hey, we are, we, we are made of the same material. We both respect God. But even though both respect God, he knew that they had fundamentally different theological ideas. And they had fundamentally different ideas about salvation. And that's a perfect lesson for us. We've got to find a way to communicate with people without alienating them. You're human, I'm human. You have sin, I have sin. We both need Jesus. We both need eternal life. You think a different way of getting there. I think a different way of getting there. But let me start off with talking about the things that we have in common. So Paul does that pretty well. He's identifying them and he's uniting with them. He's telling them, listen, I'm on your side. We're on the same team actually. And they are looking for some encouragement. And it seems like Paul is trying to find a way to encourage them and lead them to Jesus at the same time. This is important. When you talk to people, you don't just throw them with Jesus first sentence. You find out where they are at. You meet them where they are at. And from there, you lead them to Jesus. It's the best way to do it. Paul draws a lineage from Egypt to Jesus. Their God saved them from pagan Egypt. Disciplined them for a time in the wilderness. And then destroyed their enemies in front of them and drove them out of the land. But it took a long time. That's encouraging. You guys have been here in pagan territory for a while. Don't worry, the kingdom of God is coming. In this way, Paul brings them some encouragement from their own national history. But Paul isn't just concerned about encouraging them with Israel's history. He wants to bring them the story of Jesus. So he picks names of historical leaders that he knows that they would respect. He talks about Samuel. And he talks about King David. And from David, he brings in Jesus. Because there's a direct line. It's interesting for me when I prepared this, like I didn't choose the text, and I didn't choose the seventh topic for this morning. But you'll see tonight, this is just going to connect like so well. Because this morning was the same thing. David and Jesus are connected prophetically, messianically. They respected David. God showed honor to David. And the scriptures say that the Messiah would come from David. So if he's talking about David, they've already, they're already trusting him. Because David was a great guy. He was a man after God's own heart, right? Paul quotes that. Let's read verse 24 and 25. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. That's an incredible statement. So Paul now shifts over to a more contemporary person. Okay, you guys didn't touch and speak to David. You guys didn't touch and speak to Samuel. But you guys know about John the Baptist. I mean, he just lived the other day. You know he was, he was here the other day. And you know he was a great guy. You know that he was a Nazarite. You know that he was a, uh, somebody that came in the spirit, a prophet, that spoke the truth. John the Baptist, he was great. But Paul says, this guy that you know was great, was spiritual, lived of honey and locusts in the wilderness. He said, there's somebody else coming. So John the Baptist is not the Messiah. There's somebody else. So you see how he's drawing them to Jesus. Verse 26, fellow children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. When I read that, I was, it just gave me like a, a cringe. They didn't recognize Him. Yet in condemning Him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Yes. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So David spoke about Jesus. John the Baptist spoke about Jesus. Both these guys are solid, ancient, and contemporary, respectable Jews And they confirmed that Jesus is the one. So if they respected David and John the Baptist, they should respect what they said. You see how he's building his argument. And now, let me tell you what happens in Jerusalem. That's essentially what Paul is saying. The rulers didn't recognize Jesus. They fulfilled the words that is read every Sabbath about him. Through unjust means, they had him killed. Everything they did was prophesied. They buried him, but he came back to life. He couldn't stay dead. And then He appeared to those who traveled with Him. And those who saw Him are now witnesses of our people, the Jews. Verse 32 to 33, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. And I would say verse 32 and 33 is sort of a summary of everything said so far. The concluding point Verse 34 goes on, God raised him from the dead, so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. The text says, just uh, my thoughts, you will not let your holy ones see decay. That cannot refer to David. Why? Because David is dead. David is dead, and they know he decayed. But the tomb of Jesus was empty. So he's pointing to some real facts of their time. Jesus' body is not here. Verse 38, 39, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, this is key verses, Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Does that sound like this morning's sermon for those of you who did listen? Through Him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Jesus Christ, our faith in Him. Through this man has preached to you the forgiveness of sins. If you believe in him, you will be justified apart from the law. Now these are things that we we like, yeah, oh, that sounds biblical, it sounds religious, it sounds Bible, it sounds like first century stuff, stuff Paul would say. But can you imagine saying that in that synagogue? Those guys are Moses worshiping guys. Those guys are law of Moses type of guys. And then Paul comes and he says, no... Um, all you have to do is believe in Jesus and then the Lord disappears. Yo, that's, that's some heavy teaching, man. That's crazy. It had profound consequences because now it wasn't your obedience to law that justified you. It was simply believing Jesus is the Son of God. Such a simple thing. And I was trying to bring across that this morning and I don't know if it came across because it was it's, it's just a hard topic for me to deal with. It's, it's just like, it's for me at least, it's easier to believe Jesus is the Son of God, than to believe I'll be a millionaire one day. Because there's so much evidence about Christ. And I can experience it in my own life. And so when people say, just just speak it and believe it and you'll have it, receive it, it's nonsense. And then they don't want to believe in Jesus. So much easier to believe in Him. And then you'll have living waters flowing out of you. Incredible. So verse 40 to 41 says... Take care. Now he gives them a warning. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. What a warning. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. He's like, I've told you this whole message now. I've told you what happened in Jerusalem. told you what happened at the cross. I've told you what this means to you. Like, don't be stupid, man, and walk away from me and not believe this. Be careful. And that's the end of the speech. Now, we can really, I, I would like to go and pack his sermon here. I mean, it's just loaded. I mean, he starts really connecting with them, saying like, you know, brothers and Israelites. And then he goes on and he, and, and he tells them about their history, forging a relationship with them. Hey, man, we are brothers. We come from the same background. And in a neat way, he sets forward evidence about what happened in Jerusalem. You can believe in Jesus. And then he says to him, and this, in such a nice way, this flips your whole theology on its head. And everything you've lived for your whole life is actually doesn't matter anymore. Because all you have to do is believe in Jesus. Paul's got a way of saying all of this, right? It's good news. And then he ends it off with, but let me warn you, if you don't believe this, you're going get, to get, get an elbow. He's, he's a perfect writer maybe that he's a perfect thinker he had skill and ability wow I enjoy this guy he's interesting speech is done verse 42 as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next sabbath when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Wow, good job, Paul. What do you guys say? Seems like he did a pretty good job. He was well-received. Well-received. They accepted the message. They, they, they encouraged him to continue in the grace, to continue preaching. And they said, hey, dude, can you please come back next week? I'll be honest with you. I don't think they thought it through properly. You know, they had to go home and think through it. And that's what we're going to see in this text. Because it sounds, you know, sometimes a message, when you hear it for the first time, you don't think about all its repercussions. You don't think about all the consequences. Sometimes you need know, to simmer on something at first a little bit. That seems to be what happens here. Verse 44 and 45. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds they were filled with jealousy they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him Do you see how things change in one week Everybody's happy they leave the synagogue everybody's happy The next Sunday the whole what did these people do when they heard the message of the apostle They went and spoke to people Hey man here's good news we have salvation by believing in a guy who lived in Jerusalem and was resurrected. The Messiah was actually here. Good news. And the guy's like, what? Come Saturday. The guy's are going to preach again. And you can come hear what they say. It's incredible. It lines up with the scriptures. It lines up with John the Baptist. With the prophecies about David. It's incredible. It's real good news. God has finally spoken to us. The Messiah is here. But there's a crowd of people who don't like what's happening. You know who they are, right? Same guys. The guys who want the shine to be about Him. And you know what's interesting? They were filled with jealousy. They weren't interested in the truth. If they were interested in the truth, they wouldn't have been jealous. They were interested about the attention that the apostles were getting, and they were no longer getting that attention. Sad. Sad. And it says that they were contradicting the teachings of of Paul. And look at what it says. It says they are heaped abuse on them. It's interesting how it goes. It's interesting how it goes. They they make Paul the enemy. Paul isn't the enemy. The message is. And you don't want to accept it. The message is. Verse 46 to 48, Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Can I quickly take my gloves off, just quickly? Just for a second. You promise to love me still, you know? And luckily it doesn't doesn't apply to you guys, but... Sometimes, you know, this is some of the things that I wrestle with. I think to myself, do I go spend two hours with somebody that's been a Christian for 40 years and still behaves like a baby in Christ? Like somebody that doesn't know Christ at all, who has no fruit of the Spirit in their life? Or do I go spend two hours with somebody who knows nothing about Christ? Which is the better option? For 40 years, this guy knows the word, but he rejects it. 40 years. Sometimes I think this is exactly what happens here. The Jews had the prophecies. They had the blessings of God. They had the love of God. They had the scriptures. When Jesus comes, they reject him. So Paul says, well, then we'll go to the Gentiles. It was prophesied here. Look at the text. I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God wants to save the whole world. His heart is there with the lost sheep. And he's upset with the Christian who sits and is spiritless and dead in his spiritual life. And sits in church every Sunday and that's it. So Paul says, okay, then we're going to go to the Gentiles. And look at this. This is beautiful. Look at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. And honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. It's like Paul is saying, I'm not going to throw my pills to the pigs. These guys, you're not interested. You've never been interested in 40 years. How am I going to change that? The only thing that can make a change in you is God himself. So what I'll do is I'll go home, I'll pray for you. But then I'm going to go and I'm going to work on those who want to know Christ. I'm going to work on those who are lost and broken and who is a little bit more hungry for the truth. And those who actually want to change their lives. And look at this beautiful thing. And the Gentiles are happy. This is incredible. Paul is actually saying, like, we feel like outcasts. You know, Gentiles felt like sort of, they felt like half bred Jews. They didn't feel like they're really part of it. I don't think, I think they experienced a lot of marginalization. And Paul's like, I'm going to dedicate my time to you guys and to your family members. And they're like, yeah, super. Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Here we go. This is classic, classic. Let's kill the messenger. Let's chase away the messenger. Verse 51, so they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium, verse 52, and the d- disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Look at this beautiful verse. Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. See, you, Do you see what happens here? It's a, it's a very interesting situation. They take the guys that preach the message, but it's too late. The damage has already been done. They'd already preached the gospel, and they try to stop it. So they throw out the guys. They throw out Barnabas and and Paul. But the message stays behind and it spreads. It's too late. You can try to take on God's servants. You will always lose. Be very careful of opposing preachers of the gospel. You're fighting against God. That's what we see here. And what do they do? They just shake the dust off their feet. The Jews taught uniformly that the dust of the Gentiles were impure and was to be just shaken off. To shake off the dust from the feet, therefore, was a significant act, denoting that they regarded them as impure, profane, and paganish, and that they declined any further connection with them. This is hardcore. These guys, Paul and Barnabas, are cutting themselves off from these Jews. I'll be honest with you, I find that very hard. Like, I don't like cutting off from people, but I'm starting to realize sometimes when people don't want to respect God at all, there comes a line that you have to draw. These guys are drawing a line saying, we reject you. Since you reject God's word, we reject you. Crazy. All right. That's the text. A few observations from me. And I touched on it. And these are my words, remember? These are fallible. I'm just trying to put in words what I learned. The work of evangelism is to work for the invitation to speak. It's to put the effort in for that moment where the person says, Yes, I want to hear what you've got to say. Sometimes it takes 100 hours to get to that invitation. Sometimes you've got to travel over land and sea. To get that invitation. They came to the synagogue to listen first. Philip came to the eunuch. To listen first. You've got to do a lot of listening. Because that's where people f- realize they can trust you. Because you care about them. You listen. You comment. You show. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. In both instances, they were invited to speak. Both in Philip's instance and this instance. This is a very important point to raise. As I said, I think most people want to talk about themselves. They want to talk, but they don't want to listen. You know, if we just switch over our conversations, when you get into a social setting, and you just don't talk about you. You just say, hey man, how was your day? It's happening in your life. Now, how was your week? That changes the world. It does. Suddenly you have a different purpose. It's not about you. The people who are the most unhappy are the people that's just about them. You can go check it out. Selfishness makes you unhappy. Selflessness gives you purpose and direction. And it puts joy in your heart. If we want to reach people, we need to learn to listen. Ask questions about others. Get into their lives. I'll give you uh, two examples just quickly of in, in my life and you might have examples in your life, you know, I just quickly thought about an example, so I put a um, little, um, Connie allowed me to put a little free advertisement in the newspaper, and I asked if there's anybody in town, town that would like to go cycle with me, and this, a few people phoned, but this one, one gentleman phoned, and he said, yeah, he'd like a cycling buddy, and so he rides an incumbent, and so we started riding together. And on the first ride, I picked up that he's an atheist. He believes in some type of consciousness. And, and <laughs> but I must be honest, I'm a little bit stupid. Because now I go on this ride with him, and we're on the other side of Brownsville. And there's wind coming from ahead, And I want to hear what he's saying. Because I'm doing this to connect with him. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this so that I can have that conversation with him. To be honest with you, I don't feel like going to cycle there at 10 miles per hour. I want to go faster than that. And I want to go by myself at my own pace, at my own time. Now I've got to go at his time. I've got to work my schedule around it. It's a high inconvenience. But I'm riding with him. And I want to hear what he's saying. But I'm scared about the cars because I'm riding next to him. And I I look back. Oh, my goodness. And as I pull back, I wobble. I wobble into him. I smash into him, smash over him. And he's like this crazy South African dude. Yes, and I've got roasties on my hand, and my whole back wheel is bent. I had to phone Alfredo to come fetch me. What an embarrassment. But he, he's like, I said, are you okay? Are you okay? Because I feel like I destroyed the guy's life. And, and, and he's like, he doesn't answer me. He doesn't answer me. I thought he had a heart attack. And, but he wanted to just check if he's got any holes in him. So he was 100%. Now, that was a cool experience. I thought i will just share that with you. But I'm going with this guy. I'm trying, I'm trying to connect with him. I'm working. That's, that's work. I don't want to... I, 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 you know, if it was about me, I'd be here at home. I'd do something at home on my Saturday. I would wash the car. or I'd, I'd be watching a movie or something. Why am I doing I'm doing that because I want him to know Christ. God put him across my path. So if I'm going to go ride a bicycle to hopefully be invited one day to a conversation which happened, by the way, You know, I can sow seed into his life, and that can change his life forever. So it's work. That's what evangelism is. It's just that, being normal, riding a bike with somebody. I thought he'd never ride with me again. I thought that messed up everything. Next week, you are in for a ride? Yes, you trust me again. Okay, I'm coming. Then I get to his house, and his wife makes me a nice sandwich, and I get to talk to her. And she worked in the casinos in Reno. She was a blackjack dealer. Very interesting stories. Anyways, the work of evangelism is to work for the invitation to speak. And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work to connect. Yo, I'm going on long tonight. A person after God's own heart will do whatever God wants done. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I say. And you know where I take that from? I take that from from old David, Right. A person that impresses God is not a sinless person, but a repentant person like David was. Because I always look at this like, a man after God's own heart, how could David have been? Well, when God confronted him, he repented. He fell many times. He was a bad father in many instances. But whenever he was confronted with God, with what God wanted, he did it without hesitation. Secondly, the sequence of life seems to be this. Serve your generation, die and decay. How fun is that? What are you looking forward to the most? Serving your generation, dying or decaying? The most exciting part is serving your generation. Death and decay is waiting for us. We only have now. You could live all of this life for yourself and end up unfulfilled, bored and dead in any ways. Or you could sacrifice all of yourself for as many people as possible in this generation and die a happy and fulfilled human being and then decay, and then be raised to life forevermore. The more you strip away religion, the more the religious will persecute you. Let this sink in. The more you strip away at people's religion, the more they will hate you. That is essentially what happened. Let me just define what I mean by religion. When I say religion, I hope you know what I'm meaning. I'm meaning spirituality based on man's teachings. Works-based religion. Traditions of the fathers. When these apostles came into town, they brought a message of liberation from law. But the lawmakers didn't want to hear the message because they lived for the law, even though they couldn't keep it. The message of freedom in Jesus diminished their religion that they loved more than God. And the same thing happens in contemporary churches as well. The moment you take on the traditions because it doesn't line up with Jesus, people dislike you. And that's a challenge. And so, uh, you know, as, as, as God's people that have been Christians for a long time, we have to calibrate ourselves with what Jesus says. Nothing else. Jesus is our calibrating tool. And then lastly, people who believe in working for salvation are not worthy of salvation. I don't know if you picked it up. In the text, Paul says to these guys, "Since you reject God's word and do not deem yourself worthy of salvation," so I went to read up a little bit on that because that doesn't, you know, it doesn't. It, it sounds strange. You don't consider yourself worthy of salvation. Might be a little bit of a difficult statement that I make, and perhaps it's not perfectly true. Could have been said better, perhaps, but. I try to state state it in a way that, that makes the point that I think Paul is making. Paul made it clear in verse 39 that a person is justified through faith in Jesus, not the law of Moses. You can go check it out, verse 39. Later on, the Jewish teachers refused to accept this teaching. They rejected it. And what in essence they were saying is this. We will rather work under the law of Moses and trust in our own righteousness than simply believe in Jesus as the Son of God. We choose works over Jesus. Faith in Him. And so they disqualify themselves from eternal life. Here's why. Because they assume they are good enough to get it. That's the problem. The moment you think you're good enough to get to heaven, you disqualify yourself for it. Because your salvation is based in your own works and not your trust in Christ. That's what I mean by that statement. That's why I ask the question, are you sure about how you get to heaven? We have to be clear about this. I'll repeat that. They disqualified themselves from eternal life. Because they assumed that they were good enough to earn it. The moment you think you can earn salvation is the moment that you are unworthy of it. Salvation in Jesus Christ belongs only to those who trust Jesus solely for what He did on the cross. And you might say, okay, well, how do we make sense of this? I think this is what we battle with. This is what we battle with. Okay, but so as a Christian, does it mean that I must do nothing? That's not at all what it is. Salvation, let me say it like this, works, how do they say it? Works are the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. Do you get that? Maybe that's a nice way to say it. Of course we work. Of course we give everything. Of course we sacrifice our bodies to the flames, but we don't do that to get to heaven. We do it. Because we love Christ. We live for Him. And we are going to heaven. And He gave Himself for us. you get the difference? So either way, you give your best. And you do work with everything that you have for the King of kings and Lord of lords. But you know, no matter how hard you work, you're still not good enough to get there. And that's why we believe our salvation is dependent on Christ and what He did on the cross. And not on us and what we did on this earth.